0: Welcome to Jolty, a podcast to help you lift your perspective above this jolty moment and focus on the ultimate direction of our business and personal lives. Hi, I'm Maggie Wilkinson, CEO of Athena Global Advisors. And I'm joined here today with proven futurists and longtime friends and collaborators, Faith Popcorn and Adam Hant. And today we're going to be welcoming our special guest, David Edwards. Let's explore the sense and sense. Of olfactory science and how advances in scent are changing what we know about everything from COVID 19, improvements in health and well being, and innovations and the science behind smell. As they say, the nose knows. And with that, let's jolt.
1: Thanks, Maggie. And I'd love to bring on David Edwards, my friend, my colleague, who is going to spend some time with us. So, David, welcome.
2: Hi, I'm Faith Popcorn.
1: Hey, Faith, how this is are Maggie
2: you? Wilkinson. And this guy oh, forgot his name. You must know
3: it. I don't know. I know this guy. Thanks,
1: David. Thanks for, for spending some time with us.
2: He adores you.
3: Well, thank you. So, my name is David Edwards. I've been a Harvard faculty member for the last 20 years, and I'm the founder of a company called Sensory Cloud. Does that work? That's good. A That's little
1: good. more. Well,
3: yeah, I can say a lot more. I've been very involved in invention in general and particularly in invention as relates to the air we breathe and also preventing things that we actually breathe into our lungs unwanted. I'm also the inventor of Fend, which is the product that we're commercializing right now in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. And maybe I'll say just a few words about where that came from. Yeah.
2: Uh, well, please,
3: began yeah. about 20 years ago, and my applied math work led me to do quite a bit of work on aerosol particles and how they move through the lungs. People were really interested in how one can breathe in particles and then breathe them out, uh, inert particles, and by looking at the number of particles that come out, and looking at when they come out, make some deductions about what was going on in the lungs. And this became a method in the 90s for exploring lung function in conditions of cystic fibrosis and asthma and things like that. And so I, as a mathematician, began to analyze what do particles do when they go into the lungs. And so People were very interested at the time in finding a way to get insulin into the body without having to to inject it. And at the time, insulin uh, and diabetes-related expenses in the country were one-eighth of all healthcare dollars spent. And so there was a lot of motivation to find a way to get insulin less painfully into the body and became clear by the 90s that, well, if one could inhale uh, the insulin effectively into the into the lungs a lot more effectively than we did with asthma drugs one could maybe make a therapy out of just breathing in insulin and so the question was well could we make something really simple and so the idea i had was that we could make insulin particles look like wiffle balls and uh, because of the work that i'd done on particles moving through the lungs it became you were a, champion,
1: a wiffle ball player also
3: right Yeah, right. I'm not sure how my my athletic abilities worked into this. But anyway, it, it became clear that by delivering air to the lungs, we could deliver more insulin, which, of course, the NIH thought was a really crazy idea. And so it was rejected as a grant. But the research panned out and we published an article in Science in 1997 showing that we can deliver insulin very effectively it was such a big deal at the time inhaled insulin in the industry but for lots and lots of reasons uh, related to just the chronic nature of the disease and so forth they didn't get medical insurance backing and so that whole therapy was quite problematic and the first Drug actually, inhaled drug that came out of the market with the technology is uh, inhaled L-dopa for um, Parkinson's disease, which came out three years ago. <laughs> so that says something about the timescales of invention in healthcare. What happened then is I started to teach at uh, Harvard in the early 2000s, and then anthrax happened. And of course, what was going on was people were opening envelopes and finding powder, and it looked like it was really fluffy and came in the air easily. And so they thought of me because that's what I did. And so they invited me to Washington and said, Well, what do we do to um, stop people from doing this and also to protect people from powder that they don't know uh, the nature of? And so it led me to. Um, think about kind of the opposite problem. Well, how do we keep stuff from coming back out of the lungs and going to other people? So I really knew nothing about airborne infectious disease at the time. And so it occurred to me that it must be true that droplets in the airways must be carrying pathogen elsewhere and into your lungs. And so we did a study in Germany where we looked at, well, if you put like surfactant into the lungs, maybe maybe you could stop these droplets from forming And we did a control with us just putting salt in the lungs and we did a study and it didn't work and one (laughs) night i was thinking about what's going on and it occurred to me that the salts worked that actually the the control was actually working. And so I began to look up salt and mucus and it became obvious that salt interacts with mucins in a way that could be doing precisely what I wanted surfactant to do. And so if you could put salt on every lining mucus, you could reduce respiratory droplet formation. That would be helpful for anthrax, which by 2004 was not an issue. And then COVID happened. And so I approached the FDA and suggested that it was probably a hygienic way to deliver these salts to the upper respiratory tract purely as a hygiene and have a big impact on respiratory droplets. Now, at the time in the spring, people were still really doubting that respiratory droplets had anything to do with the movement of COVID. And so we kind of had this direction to go into the clinic with this, but people still wondering whether it would really matter. It turned out to work really, really well, and we just when we published this in July, a group of scientists, uh, aerosol scientists, wrote to the WHO saying respiratory droplets are absolutely the way that COVID is transmitting. And we've just spent the last several months developing lots of human studies and have now brought it onto the market and are um, really excited for what's ahead.
2: So, so how does it exactly work? You have the virus floating around. It goes up your nose
3: and what is tend to you? Let me say that when SARS-CoV-2, the virus that's responsible for COVID-19, when it enters your body, it could go, go through your mouth and you swallow it. And that generally doesn't lead to a severe acute respiratory syndrome. So that's you're generally okay. Or it can go through your nose. And then the probability is that it deposits in your nose or in your upper airways. So your, your nose and upper airways are designed to pick things out of the air. And just as a little fun fact, there's about a billion particles you inhale every day. And these include pathogens and all kinds of stuff. And
2: Excuse me, that's not that much fun, what you're telling me.
3: <laughs> and it falls out onto our mucus. Uh-huh. And, and then our mucus is designed to trap it. And then we have cilia that beat it towards the mouth. And so the way it's supposed to work is that they come into your body, they land on the mucus, and eventually they get cleared to your mouth and you swallow it. And the benefit there is that the particles, including pathogen, don't get deeper in the lungs where you don't really have defenses. And of course they don't come back out. But as you get older and, and other things, you eat wrong or get stressed, your mucus begins to lose its barrier function, which people know a lot in the gut. And what we found is that as you get older and your BMI grows, you, your probability of having lots more aerosol grows. And so the consequence of that is that when something like SARS-CoV-2 comes into the body, it lands on your mucus, it's supposed to be cleared, but if it gets back in the air as a respiratory droplet, it goes deep in your lungs, or it goes out and you infect other people. So. What the salts do is they help rejuvenate your mucus. It holds on to the virus and it kind of helps the immune system clear the virus as it's supposed to.
1: And these are the smaller droplets. This isn't what you produce by sneezing or coughing. These are the ones that you produce by normal breathing, right?
3: Yeah. yeah, That's right, uh, Adam. And, And in fact, it's not well known, but it's well established that in the course of a day, any of us, just in normal breathing, even if we're not talking, not coughing, not sneezing, we're breathing out something between 10 million and a billion particles from our airways. And 80, 85% of those are smaller than a single micron. And therefore they're actually, they go around mass really easily and they also don't settle by gravity uh, generally. And so that means that if you're in an indoor environment, these particles linger and they hang.
1: It's also true that in the cold weather, your mucus performs less effectively than in the warm weather, I believe. So is that part of the reason that the winter is more dangerous time?
3: It could be. You know, I think what is definitely true about the colder weather is that we're indoors more, and so that for sure has an effect. One of the uh, issues with mucus, it depends on where it is, and as you look at mucus in the nose, its exposure to environmental conditions is higher than the mucus in your trachea and your main bronchi go down. So you have this sort of microclimate in your in your lungs that sort of, um, even if it's really cold outside, it's just pretty warm inside. So I don't know enough about the effect of cold on mucus, but one of the things that's fascinating right now, and for a scientist in, in the fire drill that we're in right now with COVID uh, is not maybe helpful, is that every experiment we're doing right now is opening up 10 more questions. But we're trying to keep our focus right now on the main issue of protecting people from COVID-19.
1: And David, one of the things you taught me that I've learned a bit about is the microbiome and the amount of olfactory cells that are there and how we might, through scent, be able to impact metabolic conditions, obesity addiction.
3: Yeah. What's been discovered here is something that's now scientists call systemic olfaction. So there's mm-hmm. a briefly the way olfaction works in scent perception is you have a molecule that comes into your nose and it, it attaches to something called an olfactory receptor, which is a molecule in your nose. And that sends a signal very quickly through two or three synapses to your brain. And it's the only sensory signal that goes right to your brain. Generally, the idea is that as you, eat poorly, the microbiome in your gut begins to get signals because of what you're eating. And it begins to send metabolites, produce metabolites that it turns out end up up-regulating or uh, down olfactory receptors on immune cells in your gut and on the gut wall. And then those immune cells seem to travel through the bloodstream and bring that signature to your nose, among other places. And so one of the things that seems pretty clear is that your that the your changing appetite when you eat poorly eventually is programmed in you uh, through this and so even though you're trying to lose weight you've got this internal programming that's giving you cravings that's kind of going in another direction so there's obviously all of that is leading to some really provocative thoughts about how you could actually kind of go the other way around, deliver signals to the olfactory system that might help reverse some of this internal programming and help curb cravings. And so that, you know, changing metabolism through scent delivery, uh, there's, there's a lot of hope.
2: We were, three of us, we we're doing a, a couple of interviews on longevity. So does anything about olfactory have to do with longevity? And is there any connection to cancer?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the groups that we're interacting a lot with is the Buck Institute, Marin County, which is uh, focused on aging research. I mentioned to you that there's clearly this phenomenon of respiratory droplets uh, becoming more numerous as you get older. Uh, There's also a phenomenon as you get older. uh, These are both negative phenomena, but they're reversible. And so there's another phenomenon which is very significant, and that is the loss of scent. As one gets uh, older, and but with it,
2: COVID, right? COVID,
3: too. Yeah, there, there was this remarkable conclusion that there's a this correlation between sense sensitivity and lifespan. Now, it's also known that with with uh, neurodegeneration you lose scent sensitivity so like the the first sign of parkinson's is a loss of scent but the study showing that there was a shorter lifespan was not as simple as saying oh they they had alzheimer's it was really an independent signal there's been studies in animals showing the same effect so generally the lesson here is that you want to exercise your sense of smell
2: how do you do that yeah.
3: You want your mucus to be young and healthy. And those are things you can do. <laughs> There's, um, and that's one of the things we're really interested in with the scent kind of education and the kind of scent signaling, helping people remain more vital from that point of view. But coming back to the issue of COVID-19 and in the, these respiratory droplets, because it's pretty clear that with this overgeneration, or likely, I think, with this overgeneration of respiratory droplets, it leads to a higher probability of lung disease in general, whether it's uh, allergies or, or asthma or CPD. And so there's clearly what, what's likely, and this is the discussion with the Buck Institute, as you get older, you're, you're, uh, you get leaky membranes. And so you're, you're uh, basically, you're blood-brain barrier and and other barriers tend to leak. And what we're guessing is that this trend of mucus breakup, there's some leakiness that's happening here that's leading to compositional changes in the mucus. And so what do you do? Well, you know, eating right is part of it for sure. And we've done enough older people to say that there are some older people who are breathing out very few particles. So it's not like it has to be true. And I don't think we know enough to say in terms of lifestyle what to do. Eating right for sure is one of them, and something like the Fen uh, air hygiene is another thing. But
2: how do you train your your sense of smell?
3: Scent is mostly coming at us in seas of scent. <laughs> so it's like being in a room full of aspirin, and so it's it's kind of it's after eight minutes you're. It's it's toxic and you can't really smell anything anymore. And so, what scent's supposed to do is kind of come and go, and that's what your and that's where your the, the signal is, is meaningful. So, one way to exercise your uh, sense of scent is to have an adverse diet, um, to be in nature, and to be exposed.
1: to oh, yeah. So in a way, sort of being inside has kind of over sanitized our environment and has debilitated our sense of scent long term?
3: Yeah, I think the, the lack of exercise of scent is reflected in a lowering of our ability to perceive scent. We're interested in reviving this incredible organ and so delivering scent signals devoid of calories or devoid of you know scotch on your clothes, basically, but just scent signals that have meaning to us and focusing on scents that pick you up, that calm you down, a sense of memories, and then there's scent uh, that is uh, metabolic cues. So there's there's many things that we can do with scent and do without thinking about it.
2: Interesting. So I wanted to ask you this. Can you See a time when scent can come through the screens we are on.
3: Yeah, so so we, in fact, we began, you know, predictably, being an inventor is not always a good thing. And so I, I've always been interested in going right for the most interesting thing, but consumers were not at all ready for this. But we were interested in scent as one of the three sensory signals that goes through the air, light, sound, and scent, should be part of communications, right? And so we, and, and the reason why it's been, people thought about that and, and done some pretty hilarious things. The re what's pre- prevented that from happening is that scent is not energy, and so it's like a mass. And so when you put scent in a room, it doesn't go away. And so there's it, it, it lingers, it takes forever to get to you. And so most of the attempts to bring scent into digital communications have been hilariously uh, uh, wrong-headed, in that they've been kind of putting scent in space. And so it just uh, didn't work. Or it just got sticky and and all of that, and so we got around that by delivering really small doses of scent, very proximate to you. So just scent for you, and so we developed systems that would allow these scent signals, like speakers of scent, to be near you, and personal scent speakers like your earphones, and then associating the scent signals with digital signals. And you know, you, you can think of something really simple: I see the orange, I smell the orange. But I'm really interested in the idea of scent and mood and and associating scent signals in more subtle ways. One of our first apps that we made in this context was a food app that allowed people to take pictures of food and then send pictures with a scent to people. So it it got a lot of attention. What we noticed was that people were associating, the the scents they were associating with uh, pictures were not literal. I used to remember this picture of a little girl like lying on her dad's large stomach and somebody took a picture of her and associated the (laughs) associated the scent of meaty with the with the uh, with that picture which is like hilarious so the figurative so I sent as emoticons and so forth it's just so so interesting
0: fascinating. That's fascinating. I have a question that's a little bit of a curveball, but I'm curious when you were talking about the connection between smelling and uh, signaling your microbiome and the fact that there are olfactory receptors, I think you said, in your gut, do you think that your gut is thinking on some level?
3: Uh, so that's, <laughs> that's a really good question. So and, and another thing you might say is, is your, is your gut smelling, right? And so, yeah, so I think, in in a way, it's thinking. So let's come back to that in a second. But just I want to address the issue that people might say, well, if I've got olfactory receptors on my tongue or on my skin um, or in my gut, Am am I smelling things? And the the, the answer is no. And the the reason is that you have olfactory receptors, but they're not connected to a nerve. They're not sending a signal to your brain. And so what's pretty clear is that they're so sensitive, these receptors, that they're really useful around the body to get a signal. But there's a collaborative systems engineering process that's happening through olfactory receptor mediation in the gut with the brain, there is a chemical conversation going on between the gut and and, and the brain and the outside environment. And by the way, pretty clearly, one of the you've heard that dogs like smell.
0: Well, that was going to be my next question, was I had a neighbor whose dog. Truly smelled her cancer. I mean, yeah. you're going to think I'm crazy, but it did. Yeah.
3: yeah. So there's an institute outside of Philadelphia where they actually have dogs that are trained to, to identify what cancer uh, people have when they come in the uh-huh. room. And so what's pretty clearly going on is that the microbiome and the gut in general is emitting aromatic substances. And so that you have around you a cloud that if you had a really fine refined uh, scent uh, sensitivity, you could smell. And dogs do. We have 200-something uh, factory receptors. They have like a, a million. That's probably what's going on.
1: So, David, just quickly to get back to what Maggie was asking about, the gut-brain axis, it's called, it seems that there's a ton of research that's emerging that says, really, you are what you eat, and that the constitution of your microbiome could impact the uh, progression of dementia and all sorts of other cognitive conditions simply through nutrition.
3: It seems... Very likely that this dialogue between your gut and your brain is a life dialogue and that it has an impact that overrides our cognitive control, of our brain. So there's this sensory dialogue in our body and with our environment that is massive. And now that we're beginning to cognitively understand the basis of this, it's every year now, there's discoveries that are being made that are starting to put that together. My dream here, Adam, is that the future of healthcare will look in many ways like our ancient past of healthcare in a sense that it's intuitive and we're kind of doing the right thing. Our sensory engagement with the world is leading us to eat the right thing, to sleep, right, and to get outside. And uh, we're not having to read books and have watches on us that are kind of triggering us to get out. Obviously, if you look around, probably in your own lives and others around you, this is not going to be a day-night transition. We're going through that transition right now, whether it's at Mass General Hospital here in Boston or in any of our homes. But it is happening in major hospitals around the country and the world. There's this increasing understanding of and integration of a what would have been thought of as a kind of a folk medicine or a homeopathy or wishful thinking is now understood to be actually critical to living a life of wellness.
1: How much do you think our industrial food system, does our industrial food system, I know this is something you're really interested in, need to change in order to create that
3: life of wellness? What's happened in our food system is that Back when we ate naturally and fed ourselves off of the land and the sea, most of the world was hungry. (laughs) So the reality is by the late 19th century, we had major, and and throughout history really, we've had a lot of famine and and, uh, malnutrition. To solve that problem, chemicals were added and packaging was added and the whole food system that we know it today to get food to more or less everybody, more or less good tasting, more or less uh, affordable, seemed to be a miracle. And Green Revolution was part of that. But then we realized after we waited a little while, that all those chemicals and the packaging and so forth, it was like, well, not only our bodies can't deal with it, but the environment can't deal with it. And so it kind of uh, was a short-term solution that led to a big, big, big problem. It's a lot more difficult to extract ourselves out of this than it was to solve the problem back then in the sense that we're happy eating Twinkies. So there's this issue of, well, you have to, and that's where I'm really fascinated. We know what we need to do. If we were to actually charge for food the real cost of food and not have it subsidized and so forth, we would be not eating the way we're eating right now. So there's a way that policy could change, really change the food system, but it's a you know multi-trillion dollar food system and it's it's feeding the planet. And so it's not easy to change. And there's a lot of forces against that. But I'm really interested in how do you change people's behavior? Well, you need to make them happy. You want a sensory signals that I really want that. I crave this, right? And so I think that scent will be a part, and beauty really is a part of changing how we eat. But it, it, there, there'll be some real battles here to fight too. If you look at it from an uh, agricultural point of view, the prediction is we have 30 more seasons, right? And so if you look at it from a fish point of view, we have like, I don't know, 20 more seasons. So there's it's a very limited number of uh, years we have really to figure this out. And we've been around a really, really long time. And I, my f- confidence really is not in a government. It's not in, it's not in a book. It's in our biology. You know, we're survivors. And I think that we will survive this. And I think that we will not be very organized doing <laughs> it. No, people will not be able to explain it very well. They'll not be able to vote on it very well. But I think we'll get through it. And I, as an inventor and pioneer, I just see people doing the right thing and, and not just at all scientists, maybe not mostly scientists, but people are kind of doing the right thing. And so I'm, I'm hopeful.
2: That's so wonderful to hear. And it's a beautiful mm-hmm. place to stop with a little hope. Uh-huh. That's, That's gorgeous. That's lovely. Be really be lovely. Thank mm-hmm. you so much, Anani. Yeah. Thank you for bringing him. How can he be so hopeful? with everything he sees and knows. Why does he think we're gonna cure ourselves?
0: I I think Faith's point, which was I think very interesting, which is it's it's in our biology yeah. and that it will be messy. It's not gonna be tidy or organized. Right. right. Adam, thank you so much for yes. sure. fantastic. fantastic.